Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I'll be talking right now to Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, who is the author of Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy. Uh, the book is going to be officially published in February 2018, but we have the very fortunate chance to talk to her about this book before it's available. Um, Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing the very interesting book. Uh, before we talk about it, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm an associate professor at Western Carolina University, which is in Cullowhee, North Carolina, um, about an hour west of Asheville and near the um, western eastern band of the Cherokee. Um, I've been teaching here since before I finished my PhD. Um, I did my doctoral work at the University of Georgia um, with um, Dr. Jim Cobb. And um, I've been working on this book for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you can tell not because the book is dated, uh, but because of how um how interesting and how how in depth this is, um, and I think um, our, our conversation will prove that to be true. Uh, there's so much good stuff in here, so much very interesting stuff. I, I suspect um, uh, a dimension of the Jim Crow South that most people don't know very much about, um, and and as a result, I think maybe we should just start by talking a little bit about some of the big ideas, and then we'll go a little bit more focused. Let's just talk about the the title. Um, and the second part of the title, which is the massive resistance. Um, that's a phrase that, that means something pretty specific. Uh, when you use that phrase, massive resistance, what are you referring to? Well, I think historically in scholarship, massive resistance has had a very sort of fixed time period and a fixed place. So arising in the aftermath of the Brown decision and certainly ending by... 1964 or 1965 at the latest. Um, and it has been sequestered to the South in particular. And while that's useful in some ways, it seems, I guess I was curious about where those folks came from. And so what they were doing before 1954 that allowed them to mobilize such resistance to um, the sort of traditional civil rights movement. And then also um, where they went afterward so that it was hard for me to imagine that such widespread and kind of um, grassroots resistance arose just in the aftermath of the Brown decision. So I, th I think 
I will argue in the book that before massive resistance was massive support for racial segregation and the Jim Crow order. And what changed is not is maybe the publicness of the um, political actions with the rise of the civil rights movement. My use of massive resistance would change the geography and the chronology and the actors. And now, and let's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think, exactly um, a, a good place to start. And, and let's start, apropos to that, in the time period before uh, the Brown decision. Um, you start the book talking about the time period of 1920 to 1941. And, and much of the book is, is focused on what I think would be described as, as the, the, the hidden face of, of segregation, uh, which is the way in which um, local government, the most local of institutions, were involved in uh, uh, decisions that, that, would, that would seem sort of unimportant. And, and you focus on the way that women's organizations and women uh, played a role in this. Um, and you begin talking about Virginia. Uh, and in Virginia, during this time period, the category, categorization of race is, is a big issue. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how women were involved in this and, and why women? What, what is it about the work that women was, were doing that, that uh, invited their participation in these questions of counting and categorization? First of all, if we look at from 54 to 64, we look at the institutions that were um, central to the civil rights movement. Public education, of course, is one. And historically, that had been, that's an institution where women had played or had held particular authority, sort of the public extension of the family and of motherhood. And it was, so the fact that schools became this focal point of the civil rights movement suggested to me that that was an institution where women played particular roles and had long played sort of um, central roles in curriculum and teaching, and and so that I would trace that back. When I um, began to look at Virginia, I came across, um, there's been scholarship on the Racial Integrity Act, which was um, passed in 1924 and required midwives and it was mostly midwives, but required midwives and doctors to record the racial um, identity of people in Virginia. And while that was passed in Richmond, the fact that most of the people delivering babies in the 1920s were midwives and that um, the new sort of um, institutions of social welfare had attracted lots of um, women to do kind of social work and social welfare type jobs meant that if that act was going to work, that women would have to do the categorization of that. And they did. Um, they registered people um, when people when couples wanted to get married, they had to register with a local registrar, and many of the local registrars were women, and then they would turn that into the um, courthouse in their community. Um, teachers were charged with 
recording and guessing at the racial identity of their students. And 80% of the teachers in the public schools were women. And then midwives were supposed to turn in the racial um, identity of the children that they delivered. And so if the act was going to work, women were going to have to participate in it. And so that sort of, um, it wasn't just that they were invited to, it, the legislation relied on women upholding and drawing really these racial lines. And the place I focus in Virginia, um, Rockbridge and Amherst County had um, a historic population of um, folks who were um, had been categorized as white, black, and Indian. And so this new Racial Integrity Act in 1924 eliminated for most people a Native American identity. And so this was a place that was particularly powerful in the immediate aftermath of that act. Does that answer your question? <laughs> It, it does, and and I think it's it's a it's a side for those that study that probably is not surprising, but for for those that don't study this time period, uh, but who are aware of the um, sort of macro more macro ways in which uh, segregation played out, um, it's it's these micro decisions and and um, almost the public administration of segregation that matters so much in the in the stories that you tell. Um, later in the book, um, you write about three women. Um, Florence Sillers Ogden, uh, Mary Dawson Kane, and Cornelia Dabney Tucker, uh, who were involved in electoral politics. I wonder if maybe you can just tell the story of, you don't have to tell the story of all three of these uh, women, but, but maybe one of them that illustrates uh, the way that electoral politics plays out in the Jim Crow South. Well, we'll take... Mary Dawson Kane, um, who's from Southern Mississippi and is or has long been involved in conservative politics and even far right politics prior to World War II. Um, and what she does is she's a newspaper publisher. The Summit Sun is her newspaper and she writes a column and she is um, she has a following nationwide of conservatives, men and women. And in the, er, in the 1930s, she tries to push the Democratic Party in Mississippi away from support for the New Deal and away from Franklin Roosevelt. And it's, she's, it's a very unpopular position in the 1930s. But Mary Dawson Kane is... Um, an important worker in the Democratic Party in Mississippi in the 30s and 40s. Um, she is involved in lots of women's organizations. And so she is um, perceived by the state Democratic Party as a woman who can bring out women's support and women's electoral participation. And she does that by in the 30s by crap calling herself a Jeffersonian Democrat to differentiate herself from a New Deal Democrat. Again, this is not the popular position in the state of Mississippi in the 1930s, but over the course of time, 
Mary Dawson Kane will um, attract um, and be a voice for states' rights Democrats. Um, in 1944, she'll be involved in what's called the bolting electors in Mississippi, which maybe three people know about this, but um, for good reason. But um, Mississippi electors, there was a group that had decided they were not going to vote for Roosevelt, even though, even if the state went for Roosevelt, they were not going to um, cast their votes in the electoral college. And so it was this moment of crisis. And um, she was involved in that. And this is all a precursor to the Dixie Kratz, right? So in 1948, a position that Mary Dawson Kane had held and tried to organize um, conservatives and um, white Mississippians around in the 30s has matured by 1948 when Mississippi will break with the National Democratic Party. So that's one example. I have, have equally compelling and interesting stories related to this. Um, but the, your, these stories and, and the book itself is not just about the South. Um, you write in the introduction, um, and I'll quote, uh, the grassroots organizing of white segregationist women becomes part and parcel of the 20th century political mobilization of women, linking massive resistance to the political movements beyond the South's geographic boundaries. Um, what do you mean by that? And and what is the what is an example from the book that uh, illustrates that this is not just a story about Mississippi and South Carolina and Virginia, but a much more national story? I might give you more than one example, but I'll be quick. So if we go back to the Virginia case, the women in Virginia at um, Sweetbriar College that were studying social work were supported by the leading eugenicist out of New York, Cold Springs Harbor, that would train women. They thought women had this particular affinity for sort of ferreting out racial identity. And they trained, um, Cold Springs Harbor trained women um, across the nation, social workers, to determine racial identity. And so in that case, the women at Sweetbriar College who were going out and recording behaviors that they then linked to a particular racial identity were no different than, say, um, Mildred Covert, who's in California, who's doing the same thing. So while early on my stories are very much rooted in the South, in each case they have national um, networks. And a, a later example is some of your listeners might be familiar with the work of um, Lisa McGurr in Southern California and then later Michelle Nickerson. And when I was looking at the correspondence of some of my women, Cornelia Dabney Tucker, Florence Sellers Ogden, Mary Dawson Kane, um, they were communicating with women in Southern California that were establishing or trying to ensure that their public schools um, instilled the ideas of white supremacy in their children. And so as early as the, well, in the 1950s, they're communicating back and forth about different kinds of curriculum and about superintendents that aren't adhering to 
ideas of white supremacist politics. And then these women are also involved in crusades against the United Nations that also has a national conservative face. In each sort of time period, the politics of the Jim Crow politics of the women that I write about um, have adherents across the nation. And they are not, they are in conversation with various groups of conservatives and, and the far right um, in each period. Including in cities in the North, uh, like Boston. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how uh, Boston uh, and busing uh, relates to uh, women and women's organizations. How were they involved in uh, this kind of resistance um, outside of the South, uh, but resistance nonetheless to uh, desegregation through, uh, through busing? A lot of the women that I write about and look at in the South, so there's, um, and their networks, are very conscious in the mid-60s um, and sort of prophesies about what's going to happen when national legislation begins to force integration in cities that are residentially segregated in the North and the West. And so I just followed their sort of gaze. And Boston's the most um, obvious example. It captured national headlines, even though they're anti-busing crusades across the nation. And so when I went to the archives in Boston and looked at um, the papers of Judge Garrity, who had written the decision that required Boston to integrate, um, it's to cross sort of residential segregated neighborhoods and integrate its public schools, I found hundreds of women writing to Garrity and organizing in their home and school associations. Um, some of them, they invite the Klan in. They do a lot of the things that we would have associated and see white women do in Little Rock, um, protesting um, school desegregation there that we see in New Orleans. And they're doing the same kinds of things. They're um, standing outside schools, yelling as um, children, black and white children, go into elementary schools. They're putting up um, propaganda in high schools. They're encouraging their students not to go to school, not to ride the bus. It's women that are doing this sort of grassroots organizing um, in their neighborhoods to prevent meaningful school integration um, to happen in Boston. Some of them come south to study what's happening in Charlotte. Um, they always say we're not like Southerners. We're not like white Southerners. We never made anyone sit at the back of the bus. They want to differentiate themselves from what they see as racist white Southerners, but their actions um, defy their um, denials, I think. What does all of this uh, amount to to you? Because the the typical um, story of this time period is, is focused primarily on um, the way that, that men and white men uh, were involved in, in the politics of both segregation and desegregation and massive resistance. But 
what what changes um, when we shift the focus or or maybe just broaden the focus to include um, women in this in this um, in this story? So, what what in sort of conclusion can we take away from uh, the analysis and and the stories that you tell in this book? Well, I think the nation probably knows this a little more now than they would have two years ago, but that um, I think the persistence of um, racial and economic inequalities in this nation are in part a result of um, our inability to see how white supremacist politics is sustained and shaped and um, remakes itself. And I think in part that's because we've looked at the George Wallaces and the Orville Faubus. We've looked at these sort of um, iconic um, rabid Southern racist men who are lobbying for the continuation of a Jim Crow order. And by doing that, I think we've missed how white supremacist politics continually remakes itself. And so, for example, colorblind conservatism that comes out of, um, that we see sort of articulated in the 1980s and the 1990s has its roots in, some of its roots, in white women's organizing for racial segregation and support of racial segregation. They tried out, um, depending on their political audience, colorblind conservatism as early as, I mean, before World War II and certainly in the decades um, before the civil rights movement. They understood or the decades before the traditional um, civil rights movement. So I think one thing is it gives us a way to see how to understand why we haven't perhaps met the promise of equality, well, why we have not met the promise of equality and why we have today this sort of outpouring of support for white supremacist politics. It has not come from no it has not just come out of nowhere. Um, it has these deep, deep roots. And I also think that it's easy for us to focus on national legislation, federal legislation. But if we're conscious of how racial hierarchies and inequities are built into the system at the local level, I think we have to be conscious of that before we can dismantle it. And I think that if we focus only on or if we focus mostly on elected officials, we miss the kind of grassroots work that it takes to sustain and craft kind of long-lasting politics of white supremacy. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it, it does. And the, 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 your very, very interesting book, which is just about to be released, is called Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy published uh, very soon uh, by Oxford University Press. The, the author who you've been hearing from is Elizabeth Gillespie McRae. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath, for having me. 